to Ephesians chapter 1, when uh, I contacted Emilio, he sent me a topic, which I discovered last evening in his house he had forgotten, um, but uh, I had not. Uh, I had uh, uh, scrolled back through uh, a number of interesting text messages and uh, had, uh, had found it, and uh, I'm assuming that uh, part of his interest given the day of the year that it is, uh, was to focus upon uh, God the Father and uh, his covenant love for his, his people. And as I considered that, uh, obviously there are numerous texts that we could look at, but two in particular uh, stood out to me. And so I would look, like to look at those today in the brief amount of time that we have together. Ephesians chapter 1, of course, is a text that many of us have spent a great deal of time in and consideration on, uh, because there are only a few really high soteriological texts where the specific focus is on the doctrine of salvation as it relates to God's eternal purposes. And Ephesians chapter 1 is one of those texts. It's one of those places where uh, God in his graciousness opens the the veil to eternity and allows us time-bound creatures, uh, creatures who live but a very, very brief period of time upon this earth. We are described as, as grass, the flower that, uh, that blooms in the morning and fades by the evening, the mist uh, that disappears under the, under the heat of the sun, all meant to be indications of how very brief uh, our existence on this planet really is. And in comparison uh, to God and his unchanging nature, uh, you have uh, our very temporary existence. And so the fact that there would be any time uh, when God would draw aside that veil of eternity and allow us time-bound creatures to look back uh, into the very timeless existence before creation is an amazing thing. Very often, those times in, in the Bible are telling us about who God is, about the relationship of the Father and the Son. And certainly, there's a lot about the relationship of the Father and the Son in this section as well. But here, uh, we have a real focus upon what God has done in uniting a people to Christ. And by that union, bringing them into a state of adoption as the sons and daughters of God, uh, bringing about their salvation. And so, if we could just back that off just a little bit, it's ringing real, real good up here. Um, here in verse 3, notice what we have. Blessed be the God uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him. Now, at this point, the translator then has a, um, an issue to address. For those of you who were in Sunday school this morning, you saw those early manuscripts, and you saw that they're just basically long lines of capital letters. And so there wasn't any punctuation. There weren't any breaks. And so you'll notice that some of your uh, translations will differ at the end of verse 5 when it says, holy and blameless before him, and then you have the phrase, in love. In love. Now, is in love to be attached 
to the thought of verse 4 or is in love to be attached to the beginning of verse 5 where it speaks of his predestinating us unto adoption through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he graced us with, which he granted to us, but it's the same root as grace. He graced us with in the beloved one, that's a singular, so it's another word for Christ. So where do we put in love? Well, really, when you think about it, uh, it, it could be attached to, to either section of this very lengthy and rather convoluted sentence. But to me, it's important that we recognize that it is there. Sometimes we simply look over the centrality of the love of God when dealing with the highest elements of the New Testament's revelation as to how that love has been manifested. And that's because we live in a day when people primarily emote rather than meditate. We emote we focus upon emotion, we want to create emotion rather than deep meditation and thought upon, upon truth that, after deeply considering something, can produce far deeper and long-lasting emotion than going the other direction. I think that's one of the reasons we see some of the stuff we see in the church, some of the things we see in theology, is that when you emote first, you are quickly satisfied, and you'll move on to something else, but it will not last. And so you have to be constantly pumping people up, and you have to have uh, all the external stuff to, to keep the emotions going, because life has a way of uh, getting rid of joyous emotions. But when you, when you uh, I remember years ago when I was in seminary, uh, Back when I could read small fonts, <laughs> uh, I was reading Jonathan Edwards. And when I, when I say that, some of you may have never seen the two-volume Banner of Truth set of Jonathan Edwards' works. It's not exhaustive, but it's a, a huge collection. The fonts in that thing are probably part of the reason why I can't see anything small anymore because uh, it's just abusive. They're so, so small. And, uh, but I was reading his telling the story of his having gone out uh, riding in the woods one day, and he stopped and got off of his horse, and he was, he was uh, immersed in contemplation of the Trinity. Man, that doesn't happen much anymore. Um, the evangelical church in the United States is primarily almost tritheist, uh, let alone uh, having a functional understanding of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. So here he is uh, contemplating the glory of the Trinity, the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, the Spirit, and their relationship to one another, and yet their distinctions, and yet their oneness. And he was so taken up in this that the passage of time uh, escapes him, and he, he weeps in the beauty of the revelation that God has given to us of his nature. There's a huge difference between that kind of recognition of 
the relationship between divine truth and the result that it has in Jonathan Edwards weeping over these truths and the kind of surface-level satisfaction of our need for some kind of emotional uplifting that is not provided a foundation that will last. Um, If there are not biblical passages and doctrinal revelations of the scripture that do not thrill you each and every time, even when you remember your first coming to understand that, that's what you should be looking for. You shouldn't be looking for the cheap high. You should be looking for the deep, deep foundation that can always give you in the midst of even the, most, the, the lowest points in your life. You know, I, I happen to be one of those that thinks there's some difficult days coming in Western culture. And my, my son has, got, has started calling me Debbie Downer. I'm not sure if you know what that means, but if you know Debbie Downer, uh, I just keep talking about the realistic reality that, that sadly, if you, if you read what's going on in the world, the uh, Canadian Supreme Court this week uh, decided the case and, and, and decided that you can't be a believing Christian attorney in Canada, basically. They, they have, have allowed the Canadian legal system to uh, not accept the um, training of a Christian legal school there in Canada. So they basically are done. They're, they're not going to really be able to continue, I don't think, in any meaningful fashion. Uh, that's coming here. Just give it time. Um, and so there's going to be difficult times coming when we're not going to have the freedom to gather like this and comfort and things like that. Once that happens, who's going to have that deep foundational conviction that's going to continue to give us joy even in the midst of sorrows and difficulties? If we see a tsunami of apostasy coming, and I've been talking about that for a long time, what's going to be your foundation when big names fall? Are you going to fall too? Not if you have a deep foundation. Not if you really understand what God has revealed in his word. We need to have these things. And so when you look at this, when you look at this incredible passage, and right in the middle of it is this phrase, in love. I think the NASB is probably right. In love he predestined us. But it could go either direction. And the point is, all this action from beginning to end is the action of the Father from the very beginning. Blessed be who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not separating the Father as a divine person away from the Son as a sole focus to the expense of the Son because 10 times in 13 verses here in Ephesians 1, in Christ, in him, or in the beloved are used. And so the emphasis is upon the fact that the Father has acted specifically and exclusively in the Son. What we know of the Father, what we know of the Father's actions, what we know of the Father's love, we know through the revelation of the Son. But it does seem that for many Christians, there there is almost an imbalanced competition set up between Father and Son. 
it, I cringe. I literally cringe every time I hear a Christian saying, well, you know, I'm sure, sure glad we have the loving God of the New Testament rather than the angry God of the Old Testament. Um, such a person has not read the Old Testament very well, uh, does not know how often the phrase chesed, the loving kindness of God, is used in the in the Old Covenant scriptures and, and the, the fact that the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. It's a, it's a horrific heresy uh, to, to say otherwise. It's a heresy that uh, the church has dealt with many times in the past and unfortunately uh, is even uh, elements of it are being preached by very, very popular um, preachers in our day. Uh, who, there was one who just recently said we need to unhitch uh, the New Testament religion from its Old Testament backgrounds. Uh, and I'm just like, wow, uh, okay, good luck making heads or tails out of what the New Testament's saying, given how often it's quoting from the Old Testament. But hey, that's another issue we can't get into today. Be that as it may, everything that the Father does here, the blessing of us with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, how is it done? In Christ, by means of Christ. Just as he chose us in him. Now that, that choosing, by the way, is not the choosing of Christ. There are many people who grossly misrepresent what this text is saying. The direct object of the, cho- of the verb to choose is us. The realm in which that choice is exercised is only in Christ. But there are some people who try to get rid of the specificity of God's electing choice by saying that God chooses Christ and then it's up to us whether we're going to be in him or not in him. That's not what the text says. The direct object of the verb is us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And that election was to a purpose, a specific purpose purpose so that we might be holy and blameless before him the result of the work of the spirit of god in our lives sanctification the cleansing of us of our sin the conforming of us to the image of christ i remember in my senior year in high school i uh, i was concerned about in the church that i attended the fact that in the youth group there was a, well, quite honestly, a, a, a real lack of concern about holiness of life. It was entertainment. And so there was a week in which uh, students were allowed to do teaching. And so uh, I went to that incredible section in First in Peter that talks about we are to be holy even as he is holy. And... Uh, I let us all have it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was only 18, so it was probably imbalanced and immature. Um, but it certainly got a lot of people's attention. It certainly got mine. I can't read that section without being convicted of how easy it is to, to slip into spiritual apathy. And yet, our being holy and blameless before him is part of the very purpose of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because, I mean, when you think about sanctification, we know that that sanctification is worked out in our lives 
through the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The foundation of it is laid in the redeeming work of Christ upon the cross. And here we are told that the very purpose of it was a part of the Father's intention in eternity past. And so it is, it is a triune intention and a triune action as it takes place within our lives. It's not just us trying to keep rules and regulations. That's, that's not uh, what the Christian life is about. Uh, the true believer is a person who, in recognition of the tremendous grace of the triune God that has been shed upon them from eternity past, responds in light of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, mortifies the flesh, seeks after the will of God, um, and does so out of love for what God has done in that person's life. It's not, you know, I feel sorry for everyone, anyone who is involved in, in legalism. It's a, such a, it's such a hard balance to maintain. We see so many examples where people have fallen off on both sides between on the, on the one side, you know, uh, basically pandering to the desires of the flesh. On the other side, uh, abandoning the freedom of the sons of God and, and, and putting a focus upon things that, that really don't bear that focus at all. Finding that balance, I think, is, is part and parcel of maturity in the Christian life. It's what we're all called to be doing. We never arrive. If you, if you feel like you've got it all figured out, you're in a dangerous place. It's a place where you can slip and fall from very quickly. It is something that we're constantly working on. And it, it cannot be something that we limit to a certain time on Sunday afternoon and maybe a Bible study during the week. It, it, it needs to be, no matter what our job is or what our calling is, uh, a higher calling than anything else that we have. It needs to be uh, into, it needs to determine how we do whatever it is God has gifted and called us to do. So all these things, the, the choosing of us uh, before the foundation of the world, all these things, everything is the sovereign prerogative of God, but it is done for a specific purpose. And if we do take in love with the predestination of God, then in love he predestined us unto sonship through Jesus Christ unto himself. If we take the phraseology in that way, then what we see, and, and this is consistent, I think, with some of the most important elements of our understanding of God's sovereign decree, what we see is that the idea of the distant cold, arbitrary, untouchable God is not what's presented to us in the pages of Scripture. That, that the, very, the very predestination which people find to be so offensive and so, uh, I, I just simply can't believe it, I, I just reject it. it, it has to be something else. And I've heard so many express it in exactly that way. That very predestining act of God, which has, again, a personal object. He predestined us, not some nameless, faceless group. That action is done in love. It is warm. It is not cold and feelingless. It's not emotionless. I mean, I know we can talk about the impassibility of God, 
But when you talk about the impassibility of God, you have to allow for all of what Scripture teaches, which includes the fact that his action can be loving. His decision and his decree can be loving. And here you have the love of the Father predestining us unto adoption through Jesus Christ unto himself. When you think about the unworthiness that we bring to our own salvation, when you think about the sin that we brought to that initial experience with Christ, and then when you think about the sin that we continue to experience in our lives, the patience that God has with us, the times that there are so many things that God has taught us to do and we don't do them. There's so many things that God has taught us are displeasing to him and we still do them. There's so many times when we simply amuse ourselves, distract ourselves. We excuse our sin. We rationalize it. And yet he remains patient with us. That has to be done within the context of love. You don't do that with someone you do not love. And so the love of the Father results in our adoption, being brought into intimate relationship with him where we can say, Abba, Father. We don't address those words to the Son. We address them to the Father. But how many of us view our relationship with the Father as a distant, legal, forensic cold thing. It's not that there are not forensic elements. We, we can rightly talk about God as judge declaring us righteous on the basis of the merits of Christ. That's true. But it wasn't done outside the realm of his love for us. I think I emphasize this a good bit because of the fact that I deal with Islam a great deal. And Islam emphasizes what's called Qadr, the power of God in predestination and yet because of the Islamic doctrine of God as utterly transcendent there is no personal relationship there is no incarnation there can be no mediator there is no uh, action of God that makes events in time real in the sense that the incarnation of Christ did and so we talk about the Qadr, the power of God in predestination, in love. That is not a category of Islamic understanding, and it can't be, because the author of the Quran didn't know this text, never read this text, and evidently did not have any relationship with any Christians that could explain this text. And it's tragic that that is the historical reality. But in love, he predestined us unto adoption. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful word that is, especially on Father's Day when you think of the concept of fatherhood and the reality that in a broken world where tragically you can have the loss of a father or even more tragically the abandonment of a father, you can have this beautiful thing called adoption, which God does for us. It's a, one of the great tragedies of Islam that they don't have adoption anymore. It was done away with because Muhammad wanted to marry a, the divorced daughter of his adopted son. 
And so to make that possible, adoption was destroyed by revelation in the Quran. One of the main reasons, I think, that any person just standing back analyzing the Quran would have to go, this is clearly a document of man, not a document of God. But we have adoption, and that adoption speaks of rebel sinners, men and women, boys and girls, who love their sin, love their rebellion, and hence are strangers to holiness, living out their own wills, And yet God in his tremendous power, yet mercy, grace, and love reaches down and by the power of his spirit takes out that heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh, arrests them in their rebellion, raises them to spiritual life, and places his spirit within them whereby they now cry out, Abba, Father. What a radical change. And I truly feel for anyone that's in a religious system that tells them that that is a radical change, that they somehow have to work in their own life, somehow have to produce that. That is so radical that it has to be the result of supernatural power. Has to be the result of supernatural power. Adoption through Jesus Christ unto himself. All of this so exclusive and hence so offensive to so many people in the world today. Everything has to be inclusive now, right? Well, the reality is that what we see here in this first chapter of Ephesians is a very exclusivistic act of God whereby he exercises his divine power to save a particular people out of his love, his mercy, and his grace. There are few examples of the arrogance of the rebel sinner than when people will say, well, that's nice that God did that, but God actually needs to do that for every single person, or God needs to do it in a different way. I appreciate you do it through Christ, but could you arrange some other ways? Can you imagine when you, th- when you really step back and think about it, the arrogance of the sinner who in light of what God has done in Christ, in his own self-giving of his son, would make a statement like that, would even dare to think that I am so important that I can demand of God how he would provide for my own salvation or that I can demand that God do that for every single individual? I suppose it's a mindset today, but you know, uh, there's been discussion recently about the pardoning power of the president, the pardoning power of governors of states. And when you think of the governor of a state having the right and ability to pardon a convicted individual, say who's on death row, There are some who would say, well, if you're going to pardon one, you've got to pardon all. No, you don't. Justice demands punishment. And thankfully, in the Christian faith, no one ever gets injustice. Justice is done 
to those who demand it. Mercy and grace is given to those who did not demand it, but received it from God. No one gets injustice. And to think that we can demand that God somehow should extend the freely given concept of grace to every single individual equally demonstrates that we think we can put God on our level. There's nothing in Scripture that even begins to give the idea that God's grace can be demanded. It is absolutely free. If it's free, then it has to flow from his goodwill. I say, but, but the universalistic desire is so strong in man. Just let's just get everybody saved. That's focused upon mankind. It's not focused upon the glory of God. Because when you think about it, what God has done is going to result in the demonstration of all of his attributes. If everyone's saved, then fundamentally, God's holiness, his wrath, his power, Romans chapter 9, is ignored. The way that God has decreed and chosen to glorify himself demonstrates every aspect of his character. His patience, his long-suffering, his mercy, his grace, his love, as well as his power and his justice. God gets to choose that. And it is utterly destructive to our pride and arrogance as creatures. But that's what he's decided to do. And so you'll notice unto adoption through, uh, through Jesus Christ unto himself. But why? On what basis? On what basis? Years and years ago, I did a debate in Southern California with a Calvary Chapel pastor by the name of George Bryson. And George Bryson really hammered away as best he could on the idea that if you believe what James White is saying, if you believe what Reformed theology says, then uh, your mother, your brother, your sister, your child might not be saved. There's nothing you can do about it. And, of course, his own position is that since it's all based upon free will, he believes the exact same thing. There's nothing you can do to change somebody else's will. They may never choose to believe. And there's nothing God can do about it. Now, who do you want to be in charge, them or God? But here you have the explanation. When people ask, why one and not another? I mean... You've seen these situations where you'll have, you know, Jesus said that he came to divide families, that the gospel is going to divide families. And there, uh, there have been those difficult situations where you have siblings and one bows the knee to Christ, the other does not. And they die in that state. And your heart is broken, but that's the reality of what takes place. What's the difference? If, you're, if you sit here today as one who has embraced Christ Jesus, why was God merciful to you? It has nothing to do with you being better than someone else. The person who's born at the same time as you has similar capacities to you, a similar lifestyle to you. One's saved, one is not. What's the difference? The world wants it to be all about man. But Scripture says... The reason is according to the kind 
intention of his will. The, the goodness of his will, not our will. That is the word for will. And it's his will. And that's what it's according to. Mankind and man's religions demands that man's will be in control of all these things. Scripture says that this predestination, its resultant salvation, it's not just predestining a group because adoption through Jesus Christ, that's clearly soteriological, that's clearly salvation, that's something God accomplishes. That this is according to the kind intention of his will. Mankind in this, this text takes its proper place in the created order under the control of the creator. And if it were to be by anyone else's will, then verse 6 would not make any sense. Under the praise of his glorious grace, which he graced us with in the beloved one. When you're searching for ultimate answers, when you're looking for the ultimate response, and it can be in those difficult situations when God made me a hospital chaplain for a number of years, for which I am not naturally inclined as a Scotsman to walk into people's sick rooms and to... Um, find out about their lives and so on and so forth. But there was many times that I was in the cancer ward right at the time of death and people want ultimate answers. That's normally not the best time to be thinking about them in my experience. It's far, far better to have thought those things through during the days of light and peace and health than to be trying to struggle with that but we in our society, for some reason, won't talk about ultimate issues until we're ready to face them, which results in a lot of very bad answers. But it would seem to me that in all the pages of Scripture, this is certainly one of the top five revealed words from God that give us ultimate answers. Why has he done these things? Well, he has a kind will. And you may not be able to see that as a time-bound, tiny little creature. You may think that you're in a position to judge God's will. You're not. I don't care how long you live. It's, a, it's an infinitesimal fraction of God's eternal existence. And I don't have to care how much knowledge you have. It's an infinitesimal fraction of God's knowledge. You don't know what's going on. And just as we recognize that our children cannot make mature choices in light of the fact that they just simply haven't lived long enough and just simply don't have all the facts, you would think we would recognize, wow, that means I've never got an opportunity to judge God. In comparison to God, I know nothing and will always know nothing. But we don't go there. But he tells us he has a kind will. He reveals that to us. And he tells us that fundamentally all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. 
well, how is my specific situation going to result in that? How is, how is you know, I, one of, the first, one of the first young men I met in the hospital when I started doing my rounds when I first took that job was a 16-year-old boy with tremendously aggressive stomach cancer. And after visiting with him, I just had to sit down and think. I had already lived twice the length of life that this young man had. Why was I, you know, where's the purpose here? And I, I encountered many people, especially in the law support group, that were very angry with God. Very angry with God. I can't see how there can be anything positive in what just happened to me or what just happened to my loved one. It could be an accident. It could be a sudden death. It was unforeseen. If we have not laid the foundation beforehand, if we have not understood God's revelation beforehand, but even then, it takes the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts and our minds for us to be able in the depth of pain and suffering to see those words, the praise of his glorious grace, and to stay firm there. To say, that's enough, will always be enough for me. We sing Amazing Grace. Isn't it, isn't it astounding to you? how that hymn impacts so many unsaved people. And they stay unsaved. They know they need it. The very message of it resonates in their hearts. And then they'll go off and continue living their lives. It shows you the need of the Holy Spirit of God to work in a person's life to bring regeneration. But they're still made in the image of God. And they can't ignore the power of that, of that hymn. But of course, we have a hymn knocks most of us off of our pins it is well with my soul and when you think about the circumstances in which that was written the depth of loss of the run writing there has to have been a foundation an understanding to the praise of his glorious grace how important is that to us one of the reasons that we want to proclaim a God-centered message is so you can give the proper foundation to believers so that they can understand passages like this. Because when you, when you win someone with a man-centered gospel, then they're never going to be able to understand that fundamentally God has the right to use you and I to his glory. And if you don't understand that, then you'll never understand why Christians down through the ages have been willing to suffer and die for Christ. To go to the farthest ends of the, of, the, of the earth to forego the world's riches so as to be able to serve others. You'll never understand that. What we win them with is what we win them to. And if you win them with a man-centered gospel, they're never going to understand these things. These will always be closed scriptures. But if you hear the words of Paul here. You hear the words in Romans 9. 
Who are you, O man? What if God willing to demonstrate his wrath and his power? Is, is God's priority our priority? What if God chooses to use me specifically to demonstrate an element of his character to others? Is that enough? For many of us, we say no. No, I, I have to be used in, in, in the way that I choose. There remains that rebellious element within our hearts. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he graced us with in the beloved one, in Christ. That's the only place where this grace is found. That embarrasses many people in the church today. It embarrasses many people in the church today. You can always tell when a church and a denomination is turning away from a fundamental belief in the word of God when they become embarrassed by the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they have to start affirming other channels of God's grace that are outside the beloved one. But there are no other channels of God's grace. Because this one's big enough to accomplish God's purpose. Now, that's a heresy in our culture now, friends. You need to understand, if you believe what this word says, you're a cultural heretic. And I used to say, and there, the time is coming. No, the time is here when that cultural heresy can cost you. But I simply say to you, it's your only hope. If you believe the songs that we were singing, if you believe the words of our confessions, then your only hope before the Father is the finished work of the Son. You are an adopted son or daughter of God only in and through him. This is the only way. There isn't any other way. If there is any other way, then Christ died needlessly. And so your standing for that exclusive message is just the necessary element of your professing faith in Christ in the first place. But many people are embarrassed by this today. I rejoice in it. I recognize we live in a dark and perverse day when even people who call themselves Christians are willing to say things and do things that are just completely outside the realm of anything that Scripture could even begin to imagine. Father's Day. We recognize that God has ordained the family. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 19 that that's a good thing. We live in a day when we're calling women fathers. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. God never made a woman to be a father. He made men to be fathers and made women to be mothers. And those are beautiful things. But it seems to me that maybe because we are so confused in our society about men and women that we project that back upon God as well. We need to be careful as Christians that we do not project the creaturely back upon God. Yes, he uses terms that we can understand. He calls himself father. But I as a father, I know I've never, I've never been the consistent father to my children that God is to his children. Any father who can look back upon you're being a parent and claim perfection. Hasn't talked with your kids yet. 
I know one thing I'm enjoying is now that my kids are adults and having kids themselves is those conversations when we can, the rare times when we can get together. First of all, they remind me of stuff I've forgotten about because I'm getting old. But then to have their perspective, but then to be able to share with them my perspective and to realize how many things I could have done better. You'll never see me writing a book on parenthood. Ain't going to happen. But I know people who do write books on parenthood, and they recognize that it's only by grace they get to write books on parenthood. But when we talk about God as Father, let us not forget that right in the middle of this deep, deep passage of God's sovereign activity, going back into eternity past, in love, in love, in all the technical discussions that we have of theology, let us not lose sight of the fact that in the highest form of God's revelation of what he's done, he says, I have acted in love. That becomes a bulwark for us to realize that no matter what that decree results in in our life, no matter what kind of pain and difficulty we're going through, God has a loving purpose, and it will be seen in the kind intention of his will. That's scriptural revelation that we can hold firmly to. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before your majesty. We bow before your word that you have preserved for us. And Lord, as we consider what you've chosen to do and your majesty and your power, your eternity, we are once again awed by the fact that in the midst of all that, you have turned your attention to us, you have chosen us, you have acted in love to your own honor and glory. Lord, we thank you for that. We will spend eternity thanking you for that. We cannot begin to even comprehend it in this life. But we would ask that you would help us to believe and to help us to act in conformity and consistency with the truth that you've revealed to us. Make us to be truly consistent servants of yours in light of your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name.